This is Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church, Season 2. The title of this episode is 500 Years, Part 3, The Good and the Bad. By necessity and due to time, we ended the last episode really in the middle of recounting Luther's great conversion experience, where he realized that the righteousness that God requires isn't one that's born by good works, but it's the righteousness of God himself, which he gives freely to those who put their trust in the atoning work of Christ. Luther later wrote that he realized he wasn't the first one to believe that. Many of the saints of yore had come to the same realization. So it wasn't salvation by grace through faith that initially set him at odds with the Roman church. What got Luther in trouble was what came through the crack in his thinking made by that realization. If the church was wrong about something as central and important to the faith as how to be saved, what else might it be wrong about? The more he studied scripture, the more he realized that the church had gone off the rails in many ways. The most obvious and egregious, to Luther's mind at least, was the sale of indulgences which at that very moment was going on in Germany. Now, since we covered the idea of indulgences in season one, we're going to skip it here. Suffice it to say that Luther regarded the sale of indulgences as a prime example of the abuse of spiritual authority. It seemed criminal to him that church officials would hold out the false hope to poor and illiterate peasants with the idea that by buying a script of paper, they'd have their time or a deceased loved one's time in purgatory lessened. Luther was so incensed that he went on a campaign in Wittenberg to make sure that no papal rep ever came to offer indulgences to the citizenry there. But when they set up shop in a nearby town and the people of Wittenberg headed there to secure their script, Luther ramped up his complaints. Where things took a decided turn is when he decided to go public with his criticism by posting them on the castle church door. Church officials and the Pope stood to lose a lot of money if indulgences were nixed. They couldn't have some firebrand German monk running around poking holes in the theology of indulgences. Of course, it wasn't the monk that was running around. It was his words, widely reproduced on the new printing press, some of which seemed to be devoted to churning out Luther's prolific writing. It didn't take long before the church realized it had to answer Luther's growing list of charges. His assault began by attacking indulgences, but quickly morphed into far more weighty theological matters. Luther proved himself an erudite and persuasive writer. He first made the case for evaluating church teaching based on the authority of Scripture rather than tradition. Tradition was valuable, he argued, only insofar as it was a faithful witness to God's word. When popes and councils took positions manifestly contrary to Scripture, as they sometimes did, necessitating a follow-up council to correct the errors of the previous, well, it was God's word that was to be regarded as the final court of arbitration. And while the learned teaching authority of the church was to be regarded with respect, it was up to each individual believer to determine for him or herself what God's word said. If John Plowman read in his Bible that there was one God and he alone is to be worshipped, no church official, no matter what their title or how big their hat, could command him to believe something else. Roman apologists 
tried to poke holes in Luther's positions, but they found it difficult when all they could do was keep appealing to the very tradition that Luther had moved many to distrust. And his ideas just kept coming. 1520 was an especially productive year for Luther. Besides a flurry of pamphlets, he produced five books. A treatise on good works showed how faith in Christ was, in the narrow sense, the only good work that God expected from repentant sinners. Any additional work the believer could do that God esteemed as good was enabled by God's grace. The papacy of Rome claimed that the Pope was Antichrist because, instead of leading people to faith, he was obscuring the gospel. Luther's address to the Christian nobility of the German nation was an appeal to throw off the spiritual, economic, and political tyranny of Rome. Babylonian captivity of the church declaimed the entire sacramental system of Roman Catholicism. Luther could find only two sacraments that were commanded by Christ in the Gospels, baptism and communion. These four books were polemics aimed at the Roman Catholic practice of Christianity. The fifth work that he produced in 1520 was titled The Freedom of a Christian. Its tone was very different from the other four. It was an attempt to explain how believers were set apart from works but for them. Everything that Luther wrote was immediately in demand, and so the presses kept pumping out book after book. That's what found their way to that table in that hall in Worms when Luther stood on trial before the emperor a year later. The Pope and Emperor's official rejection of Luther's ideas at Worms meant, they thought, the end of that troubling chapter. I mean, obviously, that's what history had proven time and again, but not this time. All Worms did was to give birth to a movement that took off from Rome. Prior to that, the Western Church had shown a remarkable flexibility in keeping reform movements within itself. Luther and his supporters, well, they broke that mold. Not long after Worms, while in hiding at Vordberg Castle, Luther came up with a new order for church services. Then he translated the New Testament into common German. In 1525, he married the ex-nun Catherine von Bora and railed against rampaging peasants who confused the spiritual freedom that Luther was proclaiming with permission for social anarchy. Luther, drawing heavily on the 4th century church father Augustine, put together some thoughts on the human will to refute those that were being promulgated by the humanist scholar Erasmus, whose recently completed Greek New Testament was remaking biblical studies. Luther's ideas of what the church was and should look like slowly began to take shape. It no longer needed a priestly caste to act as a mediator between God and man, since Jesus had already served that role. The veil had been torn. Priests only served to sew it back up. The final 20 years of Luther's life were not as packed with drama as the first eight, after he posted his 95 Theses. It's safe to say that Luther was both the most revered and most hated man in all of Europe. He continued to write mostly sermons and Bible commentaries. His favorite work was the 1529 Small Catechism. In it, using a small Q&A format, he explained the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, and several principles for Christian living. Also in 1529, Luther engaged in a debate with the Swiss reformer Ulrich Zwingli at Marburg in southwest Germany. And they agreed on most points, but did fall out on the meaning of communion. 
Luther held fast to the idea that Christ was truly present in the elements, while Zwingli regarded them as merely symbolic. Inability to resolve that issue in a belief and practice that would reunite the two, it became clear that there'd not be a single Protestant church to offer reform in the West. There would be several Protestant churches. In 1530, Luther's colleague, the brilliant but far less loquacious Philip Melanchthon, presented a list of Luther's theological convictions to a special court in Augsburg. A document was drafted from that list and was signed by several of the princes in attendance. This Augsburg Confession became the constitution for Lutheran churches throughout Europe. Four years later, and after a decade of work, along with the help of other scholars, Luther finally finished his translation of the entire Bible. And that Bible, rendered in the common Greek of the time, became more important to Germans than the King James Bible was in England. It became the standard for modern German. Because Luther was revered by so many, watched closely as a pattern for how a soul set free lives, something as simple as his marriage and family life became a new template for human relations. Martin and Katie, as he called his wife, often had students and guests at their table for meals. They'd eat and then hold forth on all sorts of topics, Katie contributing her keen intellect and wit as often as Martin. The ease with which husband and wife communicated with each other and the mutual respect that they held each other in transformed many people's ideas about what a happy home looked like. Church historians find Luther an unstoppable dynamo who single-handedly reshaped the church and his time's conception of Christianity. Roland Bainton, one of the best of Luther's biographers, said that Luther did in Germany by himself what in England it took William Tyndall, Thomas Cranmer, Hugh Latimer, Isaac Watts, and decades of theologians to do. On average, Luther published a treatise, a sermon, lectionary, or a commentary every three weeks. But listen, Luther's story isn't all roses and peach pie. The man cannot be regarded as a model for decorum. Once he felt safe behind a row of supporting German princes, Luther was often blunt to the point of being crude. He oft penned things that embarrassed his supporters as much as enraged his opponents. Sounds a little bit like a modern national leader on Twitter. For example, when parents began withdrawing their children from school because they no longer trusted the church to educate them, Luther wrote that such parents were, quote, shameful, despicable, damnable parents who are no parents at all, but despicable hogs and venomous beasts devouring their own young, unquote. On more than one occasion, Martin even counseled civil rulers with troubled marriages to go ahead and take a second wife, justifying it by pointing to the kings of ancient Israel. We'd also have to say that Luther was, and many times, a troubled soul. He was constantly harassed by emotional turmoil, doubt, and depression. A modern observer might wonder if Luther was manic-depressive. His rapid shifts of mood were legendary. Engaged by his writings, he was something of a hypochondriac, who commented often on digestive problems. While there were times when Luther exhibited deep compassion and a profound humility, there were other times that he readily admitted his desperate need of grace. He pretended to be no saint. 
Nowhere was that on more display than in his grievous episode with the Jews in 1543, just three years before his death. In the most extreme language, Luther called for the rulers of Germany to confiscate Jewish wealth and then expel them. His words were resurrected by an out-of-work Austrian artist nearly 400 years later and used to justify the Holocaust. Luther was certainly a flawed vessel through which truth flowed, but there was no gainsaying the power of that truth. More than anything, it was Luther's vision of God and his grasp of the gospel that turned history into a whole new course. The moment of Martin's actual conversion was a long time coming, but once affected, it had a remarkable impact. Those who were able to follow Luther's chain of reasoning out of a works-based system of religion into an intimate relationship with God based on his grace discovered what he had, God's eternal yes for those that come to the end of themselves and cast themselves completely on him. Luther put it this way, quote, Where man's strength ends, God's begins. Provided faith is present and waits on him. When the oppression comes to an end, when it becomes manifest, what great strength was hidden under the weakness. Even so, Christ was powerless on the cross, and yet there he performed his mightiest work and conquered sin, death, world, hell, devil, and all evil. That's how all the martyrs were strong and overcame. So too, all who suffer and who are oppressed overcome. Unquote. Luther remembered the words of Barnabas and Paul spoken to the Christians in Antioch, recorded in Acts chapter 14, when they said, We must, through many hardships, enter the kingdom of God. Luther often repeated the reminder, We are Christians and have the gospel, which neither the devil nor men can abide, in order that we may come into poverty and loneliness, and God may thereby have his work in us. He penned in the words of his best-known hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Luther's last written words summed up the essence of his vision of God. Closing out a brief essay, he moved from Latin into German and said, We are beggars. That's the truth. But Luther penned those not in despair. He knew that the cross meant that God heard the beggar's cry. Hey, 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 hey.